Praise the Lord. If you have a Bible, we're going to start teaching out of the book of James. And so we'll turn to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. And Father, as we're gathered here before you, Lord, we thank you, Lord, for that precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that cleanses us on a daily basis and gives us fellowship with you. And we just ask you, Lord, on the basis of that, that you'll meet with us here and you'll speak to us and minister to everyone's needs. And we thank you that you'll do that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we got James chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. And James writes, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations or trials, knowing this, that the trying of your faith works patience or endurance, but let endurance have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. So the title of the message is Trials Bring Maturity, probably part one. How many people... How many of you know how many people lived in the house that Jesus grew up in or have an idea? Nine. So a lot of people kind of have his idea like Jesus was an only child. But if you read Matthew 13, it names his four brothers. He's got four brothers that are named. It says he has sisters, so we know he had at least two, maybe more. Then there's Mary and Joseph and, of course, Jesus. So you have at least nine, maybe more people, and their houses weren't big back then. So you think about it, that's, that's the house he grew up in. They had a lot of brothers and sisters. They were rubbing elbows. And one of the brothers, Matthew names, is James. And he's the one that is commonly assumed. I'm not going to get into all the who it could be. It's commonly assumed that he's the one that wrote this epistle. The brother of Jesus, James, wrote this. And Paul names James as the Lord's brother in Galatians 1.19. And he was the leader in the church of Jerusalem. You can read all about that in Acts 12, Acts 15, Acts 21. He was a, one of the main leaders in the church of Jerusalem, the Lord's brothers. And you think about it, James would have known Jesus better than almost any of the other apostles, better than almost anybody living. So could you imagine, though, if you were him, you're living with a perfect human being for 30 years. Yeah, I hear your husband's thinking, yeah, my wife could testify to that. Right. <laughs> But you think about it, James didn't think of Jesus, though, as being anything special. In fact, when he's out preaching and God's anointing is on him, you know, him and his brothers and his mother, they're coming. They think he's gone mad with what he's doing. But it wasn't until after the resurrection that James's whole thinking was transformed. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 that James was one of them that saw the risen Lord. It was never the same. So the amazing thing is thinking about this in verse 1 here. James, though, he doesn't write starting this epistle. He doesn't say anything in it about that he's the Lord's brother, does he? Doesn't say a thing about it. And I think if I was Jesus' brother, I would. You know, but he's not doing any name dropping. Instead, with him, the earthly relationship with Jesus, the Lord Jesus, is over when he's writing this. So now, what's Jesus' relation to him? I mean, he's the risen Lord and Savior. That's his relationship to James. And so James, look what he says there in verse 1. He refers to himself as a doulos, a slave or a bondservant. He's saying, I am permanently subject to this one that's more powerful. I don't know him like Paul said. I don't know him in a fleshly way anymore. He is God Almighty, ruling and reigning. And that's the way I know him. And he's just saying, so it doesn't mean anything to me 
James is saying that I'm the Lord's brother because anyways, I missed it for all those years I lived with him. I didn't get it. I don't have anything to brag about. And so he's like, I have seen him in his glorified state. And I am just happy and blessed that I can just call myself his servant. A bond servant, his slave. And think about that. So what does a slave do? A slave does his Lord's bidding, doesn't he? That's what he does. And so like James, Paul repeatedly calls himself the doulos of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the way he starts off Romans 1, Philippians 1, Galatians 1. And so he was solely and wholly committed, Paul, James, Peter, to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And for Paul, when did that begin? When did that submission, that slavery, so to speak, to the Lord Jesus begin? I think it began in Acts 9 when it says that bright light appeared. He's on his way to persecute the Lord, to persecute his saints, because Jesus says, you're persecuting me. But that bright light appeared, knocked him down, and he spoke to him. What did Paul say? Lord, what will thou have me to do? And that is the attitude of a servant, isn't it? And he never lost that. And that should be our attitude, just a willing, grateful servant. And that's the way all the early Christians, they viewed themselves. That was a derogatory term. To be a slave, to be subject to somebody like that in that Greek culture, that was the biggest put down you could have. That's nothing you would brag about. But yet that's the way the early Christians were glad to look at their relationship to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And they're saying that like a slave, we are totally dependent on God. We belong wholly to you because you bought us and redeemed us out of the slavery of sin and bondage to Satan that we were in. This slavery, it's not like the slaves that were forced over here from Africa. They didn't come of their own free will. But as Christians, Peter, Paul, James, it's willing slavery, so to speak. Willingly we're bond service to the Lord, aren't we? And that's the way it is. It's a joyful yoke that we should gladly bear and that they bore back then. And so that's the attitude of James we're getting here. He's not starting this letter off like he ought to be honored, like you ought to listen to me because I'm the Lord's brother. No, he doesn't do it that way. He's just like, I'm one of you all. I'm just like you. I'm just a slave. I'm a doulos of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the attitude then we should have when we read what he writes. Because that's the attitude he's writing in. So what's the theme? That's the theme, actually, of the book of James, I think. It's how to develop a deep, sincere, consistent, faithful walk with God. That's really what he's telling us here. Be doers of the word and not just hearers only. And so James, it's about faith. But it's not just about teaching about a dry doctrine of faith, is it? It's talking about you've got a living faith, and this is how a living faith works itself out. And he mainly talks about it through relationships with God and others. So James is filled with admonitions on how to relate to each other. It's a very practical book. I mean, at the end of chapter 1, he says there that we should watch out for orphans and widows, how to deal with them. That's what true religion is, he says, a living faith. Chapter 2 talks about we can't be impartial to people that come in your assembly, whether they're rich or poor. You can't put the rich up front and the poor in the back. He's saying you should have the same concern for everybody. Everybody's on the same level. So James wouldn't have been like, man, I need to sit in the front row and have a special seat because I'm the Lord's brother. No, he's saying you can't do that. You definitely can't be treating the poor differently, showing partiality. And then in chapter 3, he talks about how we use our tongue, 
how that relates to other people. He says, you can't have that tongue on the one hand, you're cursing people, you're blessing God, but then you're cursing your brother. He's saying, you can't do that. And he deals with the tongue. Chapter 4 starts off about their fighting among each other. What are these wars going on? It's just because you have lust that you haven't crucified. You need to repent of that, he tells them. And he talks also about speaking evil of your brothers and judging your brothers. So it has a lot to do with relationships. In chapter 5, that begins with saying if you're rich, you really need to watch how you treat the poor, that you don't oppress them. He goes on to talk about in James 5 about you need to pray for those in trials. And it ends with saying what? If you see somebody that's wandering away, that's not doing well, he's saying you should actively pursue them. Bring them back. So it's talking a lot about relationships there. But one thing a man pointed out I thought was interesting is, though, before James tells us and exhorts us on how to deal with others, you know what he does first? And this is what we're going to start looking at today. He says we've got to get our own lives in order. And that's what chapter 1 is mainly about. Getting yourself in order, enduring trials, overcoming temptations, being doers of the word. And those are things that we need to deal with ourselves individually. We need to get that right within ourselves individually. In other words, when you take the big picture of James, he's saying you need to get yourself squared away first and then you'll properly know how to deal with others and to help others. That's the way it's got to be. And Paul said the same thing to the Ephesians elders in Acts chapter 20. He told them, he said, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock. But notice the order he says that in. He says, you elders take care of yourselves first and then take care of all the flock. And that's just the principle. I mean, that's just a principle about how can you get the speck out of your brother's eye and you got a beam in your own. you got to take care of yourself first to properly see how to do things. And here's the reason that is. You know, if you've ever flown on an airplane, you'll hear that announcement they make, in case of loss of cabin pressure, oxygen masks will fall down above your seat and please place the mask on your own face first and then help children or others. And so why is that? That sounds funny, doesn't it? I mean, it's like, shouldn't you help your kid out first? Don't you want to save him most of all? Well, the thing is, if you're above 20,000 feet in altitude, the way I understand it, you've got about 20 or 60 seconds to get that mask on or you're going to die. So guess what? You're fumbling around with your kid because, no, nah, I don't want that thing on my face. And, taking it all it. and then all of a sudden the kid dies and you're dead. And you got, everybody's dead. So that's the principle. It's true in the church, isn't it? You know, if you're not doing well spiritually, you're not going to be able to give help to others. So we're looking at James here, chapter one. You have to ask yourself, am I enduring trials? We'll be looking at that today. He talks about, am I resisting temptations? Am I actively doing what I hear? Am I doing all that? So we can't expect to instruct somebody else to do something that we're not doing ourselves. That's the way it works. So James was kind of funny here. I mean, unlike you read Paul's letters, if you've ever noticed this, he says who he is. James, a servant of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes which are scattered, which could be Christian Jews scattered abroad, or it could just be God's people which are scattered. And then he just says greeting. I mean, Paul will have all this stuff. I thank God always for your faith, your love. And he goes on and on and on. He'll go, you know, sometimes a whole chapter. And James is just like greeting. And then he just jumps right into it, doesn't he? Just jumps right into what he wants to say. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. So he's dealing with the testing of our faith. God wants to test our faith to see if it's genuine faith. 
and not just to see if it's genuine. The testing also does a maturing work in us. That's what he says. When your faith is tested, it also matures like a muscle. Every time it's tested and you pass, it keeps growing stronger. So that's the way it works. And because the reason is, he tells us there in verse 4, is God wants us to be whole, complete, mature Christians. That's what it's all about. He doesn't want us to be, and some people are, they're atrophied, they're babies all of their life. They never mature because they don't endure their trials. They get out of them. That's the thing. That's the only way God is going to get us to where he wants us to be is through trials, through severe testing as much as we don't like it. Because the truth of the matter is, Jesus says, y'all, I'm coming to you because you're sick. Came not for the whole, I came for the sick. And so he's our physician, isn't he? And the medicine that he's prescribed that will make us whole is trials. And so when he puts that spoon up to your mouth, we look at it and it's like, what's on that spoon? He's saying, this is what you need to take. Just like your parents, if you, well, your parents wouldn't have, mine did. You know, you got a cough and they come that syrup, that black stuff, and it was nasty tasting. So it's like he's putting that up to your mouth and you need to take this and take all of it. That's what my parents would always say, lick the spoon, you know. But you look in there and it's all these various trials on that spoon. And you're looking at it and you're thinking, man, oh man, do I have to take that? You're asking him just like you'd ask your parents about the cough syrup. And he's like, well, do you want to be like Jesus? Do you want to make it in? Do you want to have the maturity that's going to allow you to endure until the end? And I mean, especially we need to hear that now. You don't like these trials? Well, nobody likes trials. Nobody likes cough syrup. And he's going to say, here it is. And you better open up and swallow with joy. Looking unto Jesus as you do it, the author and the finisher of our faith. So James here explains how we should deal with trials, what our attitude ought to be. He talks about that in verse 2. In verse 3, he talks about the reason why we need to endure trials with a joyful attitude. And verse 4 tells us what the expected result is. So I want to look at first, it's verse 2 where it says, My brethren, he says, count it all joy when you fall into diverse trials or temptations. He says, it's a command. He says, count it all joy. It's not an option that he gives here. In fact, James gives, I think it's over 60 commands in his epistle. So Paul, a lot of times, will do a lot of explaining. This is how you are in Christ, your union. No, James, it's just an active, this is what you need to be doing. It's a lot of exhortations, we'll see. So he's saying there to count it all joy. And that count means to consider, to step back and deliberate. He's saying count it all joy. Think about it and then have a conscious acceptance that when I look at this trial, I'm not going to look at it like something I hate, something I'm going to moan about. I'm not going to look at this trial and wonder, does God love me? He says, I'm going to consider it all joy. Some translations will say pure joy. And you're like, what? Because, you know, honestly, I think it sounds crazy and counterintuitive, doesn't it? A trial, you're going to rejoice James is right in line with Jesus. He gives us the same command. In Luke 6, Jesus said this. It's in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. But Luke 6, 22, he says, Blessed are you when men shall hate you, when they shall separate you from their company, and shall reproach you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. But what does he say to do? Rejoice ye in that day and leap for joy. 
For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for in the like manner did their fathers unto the prophets. And so he's saying, don't wait until the persecution's over with. He's saying in the day it happens. Rejoice, he's saying, and leap for joy. Is he saying that because we are supposed to like being hated, to be in reproach, being persecuted, being called evil? Oh, that's not why. What does he say? The promise is that you have a reward. He says, for great is your reward in heaven. That's the promise. That's why we rejoice. We don't rejoice because, oh, man, this is great. You know, I haven't been maligned in, in a day. And this is great. I'll just bring it on. I want more of this. No, that's not what he's talking about. But he's saying you're suffering on his behalf. And he's saying when you do that, the joy is not that this is feeling good, not that this is really giving me a good day today, but he's saying you got a reward up in heaven waiting on you. He's saying rejoice in that. So it's faith in the promise of God. It's going to bring your joy. Isn't that right? So the joy that's commanded by the Lord, it's not an emotional joy. It's a deliberate, intelligent appraisal of the situation from God's perspective is what you're doing. You're looking at this and you're saying, man, I don't like this at all, whatever your trial is. But God is allowing this to happen. He's in control of it. It is for my good. I mean, we're back to Romans 8:28. So we're supposed to count it all joy, not when we're delivered. Not when everything's looking good. That's what the world does. But we're to count it all joy. James is saying here, and I'm saying, man, are we all guilty of this? Murmuring about stuff that happens no matter what it is, big or small. Mm, Got to get back on that. But James says we need to do it when the trial comes. That's when it is. Trouble is sure to come. Because look what it says there. Count it all joy does he say, if you fall into divers' temptations or trials, he says, when. And so, when is the when? So the idea behind this is they are unexpected. Isn't that the way typically trials are? I mean, anybody had a major trial come on them where they like knew it was coming? So it's like one day you feel great, and the next day your back is causing you major problems. All of a sudden, you're in a trial. Isn't that kind of the way it works? They generally come unexpected. And he also says there that they are divers, all sorts of colors. That's what divers means. It means various colors. It's like Joseph's coat of many colors. So trials, hey, everybody's got different trials in this room, tailor-made for you. You know, they come in the colors of persecution. Sickness can be a trial. We're trusting God to heal us, but it can be a trial, right? Loneliness, disappointment, financial setbacks. Your job's not going well. You got problems on the job of all sorts, relationships, and on and on. Large and small trials. He says, count on all joy when you fall into various different colored, various trials or temptations. And look how it will happen. This is another, I thought this was interesting. How it will happen, it says, when you fall into trials. And fall into means to encounter hazards. Count it all joy when you encounter all different kinds of hazards, so to speak, is what he's saying there. And the word is used in Luke 10 of the man that was walking on the road to Jericho. It says that that man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and it says he fell among thieves. That's our word right there. It's a Greek word. 
parapipto, and para means to come around or surround and fall on. And it paints the picture of this man. He's walking along the road. It's a sunny day. I'm sure he's whistling Dixie or whatever you would whistle in Jerusalem. And all of a sudden, these thieves are around him. They're surrounding him just out of nowhere. You see those trails up in there, and those guys can hide in those rocks. No escape. And what happens when that happens? When they surround you, you fall into. They attacked him, didn't they? Beat him up, took his coat. And so the suggestion is there's no way to avoid trials of all sorts. So it's just like the thieves. Trials are just like the thieves, a man on his way to Jericho. Trials or adversity out of nowhere, all of a sudden, you're surrounded by them, so to speak. You know, there's no way of getting out. No escape. You didn't ask for it. You didn't look for them. But James is telling us here, trials are going to find you. And that's what the Lord said. In the world, you shall have tribulation. It is through much tribulation that we shall enter the kingdom of heaven. They find us. And what is Peter saying? Should we be surprised? Should we be surprised about that? Because Peter says this, Beloved, think it not strange. Don't think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice, count it all joy, inasmuch as you are partaker of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also, it says, with exceeding joy. That's what we're talking about. And so Peter says, don't act like, what in the world? And that's our, sometimes our first reaction, isn't it? Something happens to you, and it's like a bad thing, and you're like, why is this happening to me? God doesn't love me. Something's not right. And Peter's saying, no, 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 don't think it's strange. When a fiery trial, he doesn't just say a trial, a fiery trial happens on you. Don't think it's strange. Don't think it odd. But rejoice. So, but the thing is, when a fiery trial comes, does that mean you just laugh about it? <laughs> Sometimes you're in a trial and somebody's going to make light of it. You're like, hey, this is no laughing matter. <laughs> it isn't to me. So that's not what he means by counting it all joy. But what it means is you've got a sure confidence that God knows what he's doing and the results are in his hand. And like I said, it's Romans 8.28. All things work together for good to those that love the Lord. So James doesn't say there, when he says count it all joy, he doesn't say feel joy, does he? He doesn't say trials are joy. That's uh, kind of goofy, isn't it? Because they're not. But the joy in trials is, and this is what James is saying, you get to grow in endurance and grow in maturity and become complete. That's the joy that through this, as unpleasant as this is, God is doing a work in me. A humbling work in a lot of times, doesn't he? <laughs> if you can get through it. And so to me, Joseph, in thinking about this, he is the perfect illustration of falling into divers trials or temptations. Because Joseph was just like Martin Luther King. He had a dream, and that dream got him in trouble. So one day his father Jacob, he says, why don't you go out and just check on your brothers and see how they're doing? And it was just as far as Joseph knew, kind of like the guy on the Jericho Road, it was just another day in Shechem. That's where he's headed, in case you didn't know. Another day in Shechem for Joseph. But he didn't suspect, I'm sure, on the way there that he was getting ready to fall into the trial of his life life. I'm saying you fall into them. They come unexpected. They find you. He didn't look for trouble. 
His brothers see him coming. They plot to kill him. And he gets to his brothers. And just like the thieves on the Jericho Road, they surround him. And it says they stripped him of his coat of many colors. They throw him in a pit. And there he is. How do you think he felt? You think Joseph felt all happy inside, warm and fuzzy? <laughs> I don't think so. He just fell in the diver's trials with his diver's coat. And he's stripped of that, and he's sitting there in a pit. Then they sell him to some Ishmaelites who carry into Egypt. He becomes a slave to Potiphar. When Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him and he resists, it's all over again, right? He's thrown into prison. And there again, I'd say, how much joy, so to speak, if you're going to talk about feelings, do you think Joseph was experiencing? Well, if you would, turn to Psalm 105. We can find out what he was experiencing. Psalm 105 gives us a little insight here. Psalm 105, beginning in verse 16. Psalm 105, 16 says this. Talking about the Lord, moreover God, he called for a famine upon the land. He broke the whole staff of bread. And he sent a man before them, even Joseph, who was sold for a servant. And look at verse 18, whose feet they hurt with fetters. And King James says he was laid in iron. It literally says the iron, the chains entered into his soul. I mean, he was having a hard time being chained in that prison. It was not an easy time for him. Verse 19 says, until the time that his word came, that dream came to pass, the word of the Lord. Until that time, though, what does it say happened? The word of the Lord tried him. And I mean, that was in a severe way. Hurt his feet with feathers. Iron entered his soul. The king sent, verse 20, and loosed him, even the ruler of the people, and let him go free. He made him lord of his house, ruler of all his substance, to bind his princes at his pleasure and teach his senators wisdom. Well, let me ask you this. When Joseph's surrounded by his brothers, it's 11 against one. When he's cast into the pit and sold into slavery, taken away from his home, from his father that loved him, everything he knew, when he's thrown into prison just for obeying the word of God, I think Joseph had a heavy heart to deal with. I think that's the natural thing. Wouldn't it be for you? I don't think there'd be any sin in that. He's having to deal with all of that stuff. Only natural. And that's what Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1. He says, you are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. He says, wherein you'll greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations. That the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. I'm sure Joseph experienced pain and lowliness and anguish. I'm sure he cried, and I'm sure he cried out to the Lord to help him out. But I also think, though, that there was this sense of joy in spite of it all. Why? Because, getting back to Martin Luther King, he had a dream. And God sustained that faith in his heart that that dream somehow, no matter how dark this looks, just like with Jonah, no matter how dark this looks, God is somehow going to bring that to pass. I don't think he ever lost that. So he had to be trusting in God somehow despite all the pain, darkness, and hopelessness of his situation. That's what I think. He had to trust that God was going to be faithful and deliver him. 
And that's what we said a few weeks back in Habakkuk. Habakkuk says what, although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be on the vines. The labor of the olive tree shall fail and the fields shall yield no meat. The flock shall be cut off from the fold and there shall be no herd in the stalls. Couldn't get any worse than that. And yet Habakkuk says what? He says, yet I will rejoice. And he says what? I will joy in the God of my salvation. And why is that? It's because the just shall live by faith. So it isn't circumstances that Habakkuk was looking at, that Joseph was looking at, that James is telling us to look at. It's not the circumstances that are going to produce the joy. What is that that produces joy? It's we know that God is faithful. God's faithfulness. So joy only comes by trusting in God's promises is what we're saying. It is. And knowing that he's faithful. So Andrew Murray, he believed the divine healing, but he's in England staying there on a visit. He's suffering. He has this terrible back trial. And one morning he's staying at this house. He's eating breakfast in his room and his hostess told him of a woman. There's a woman downstairs and she's saying she's in great trouble and wanted to know if you have any advice for her. So Andrew Murray had been writing on his paper. He hands it to her and he says, here, take this to her and see if that helps her. I was writing it down for myself. And this is what he had written. In time of trouble, say, first, this is what he's saying you should say in time of trouble. First, he brought me here. He, God. It is by his will I am in this straight place. In that I will rest. He says, next, he will keep me here in his love and give me his grace in this trial to behave as his child. Thirdly, he says, he will make the trial a blessing teaching me lessons he intends me to learn and working in me the grace he means to bestow. And lastly, he says, in his good time, he will bring me out again how and when he knows. So he said, therefore, he says, say this, I am here in this trial, number one, by God's appointment. Number two, in his keeping. Number three, under his training. And for in his time, he'll bring deliverance. And that's what we have to look at. I thought that was pretty good. How does it say that he was able to endure the cross? Hebrews 12 says this, who for the joy, we're talking about joy, the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. And what was the joy that was set before him? that enable him to endure the cross. I'm looking at it. It's us. It's the promised seed. He says, you'll see your seed. And it says in the end of Isaiah 53, you will see of the travail of your soul. So he knew in doing this as bad as this was. You think we're talking about <laughs> count it all joy and that joy can't be that you're experiencing some kind of, oh, this just this is putting goosebumps on me. It's not a feeling in that sense. Because it wasn't that way for Jesus, even though it says for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. But he's crying on the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I don't think he was saying that with a smile on his face. But there still is this joy, this assurance, this confidence that God will fulfill his word and do what he says. Bringing many sons to glory. That was the joy that he kept before his eyes. And he was able to endure the agony of the cross that way. And if you would, turn to Acts 20 and see how Paul dealt with things. Acts chapter 20. So here we talked about earlier, Paul is meeting with the 
elders at Ephesus. And look what he says here in Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 17. It says, and from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church, Paul. And when they were come to him, he said unto them, you know, from the first day that I came into Asia, after what manner I have been with you at all seasons, serving the Lord with all humility of mind. And look what it says, and with many tears and temptations, trials which befell me by the line and weight of the Jews. He's saying they put me through the ringer and how I kept back. Despite of that, I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance towards God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says in verse 22, And now behold, I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem. He says, I'm going there. I don't know what's going to happen to me. I have no idea what things shall befall me, except, he says, I know this. And this is really, I'm sure, really comforting for him. Save the Holy Ghost witnesses in every city saying that, bonds and afflictions they're waiting for me there he's saying i've already had to endure a lot a lot of opposition from the jews and he's saying and now i'm headed to jerusalem i don't know what exactly is going to happen except the holy spirit's saying it's going to be bonds and afflictions it's not going to be an easy time but look what he says in verse 24 he says but none of these things move me he says neither count i my life dear unto me so that what I might finish my course, how? With joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. So how was he able to finish his course with joy? How was he able to do that? Well, the answer is over in 2 Timothy 4, if you'll turn there. He said, I had all this trouble. I had more trouble coming my way, and yet I will finish my course with joy, he said. And here's where he finishes his course over here in 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 to 8. For I am now ready to be offered, and the time, he says, of my departure is at hand. He says, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. He says, henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them that love his appearance." How was he able to finish his course with joy? He's using the language of the Olympic Games. He's saying, I have fought a good fight. It means I've competed well. He's talking about, I've finished my course, or really the word would be race. I've finished my course. I've finished my race. And those that compete well and finish the race win crowns. Or more accurately, the word would be a wreath. There's a word, it's translated crowns, but one is a crown like you put on a king, and this is a wreath like somebody would win in the Olympic Games, made out of foliage. And so they only gave those crowns, those wreaths, to those they held in high regard, like they did something just like in the Olympics. When you do something, they would put that wreath on an athlete that competed and won. And it's a sign of honor. And that is comparable to getting a gold medal in the Olympics today, is what he's saying. So they'll spend four years of training, don't they? Trials, self-denial, pain, just so they can stand on a platform in front of millions of people watching on TV and bow their heads while somebody slips over their neck a gold medal. And they'll treasure that gold medal for the rest of their lives. They'll put it in their case and put a light on it. And so it's the honor, the glory, the fame of getting that gold medal and being on TV and being the best 
That brings them joy. It brings these athletes joy. And so for Paul and all Christians, it's the trials, the difficulties, the sufferings of all kinds and colors. He's saying it will be worth it all when one day, this is what Paul is saying there in verse 8, henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. He's saying one day we're not going to stand before millions of people on TV, but before our Lord, our righteous judge. We're going to stand before him and we'll bow our heads and he is going to give us glory and honor, isn't he? And put, it says, a crown on our head. How much more is that to be desired than this earthly crown that these people compete for? So that's the thing. He'll give us all this glory and honor. The Lord Jesus Christ will, including with that glorified body and what joy we'll have. And all we had to do was respond to the grace that he gave, because that's we've said this many times here lately. That's the only way we're going to make it. But that is how we will finish our race with joy. And Paul's saying that's the way it's going to be. At the end, if you endure your trials, laid up for you will be this crown of righteousness that God himself will put on your head. So we have to let those trials, though, James says, do that perfect work in us. And sometimes, doesn't a trial, I mean, I know, it seems like more than you can bear. And we need to remember the song that we sing. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted or tried beyond what you are able, but will with the temptation or the trial, it's the same word, will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. And so we have to trust that this trial that we're in, and it's going to be different for each one of us, is sent from God. Isn't that what it says there? It's sent from God, whatever trial we're in, and he is in control. And because he's in control, he won't let the devil or your circumstances be greater than you to where they can just overwhelm you. Now, listen, he also says in Hebrews 4, though, that when we're facing a trial and we need to come to him for help, we need to do that, don't we? To come to him and get grace to help in time of need. And that's part of it. We have to be seeking the Lord. He's a rewarder of those that diligently seek Him. But sometimes it seems like it's more than it can bear. And I'm sure it was that way for Joseph. I'm sure it was that way for Job. Boy, you talk about wave after wave after wave right on top of each other of trials to where he, all he literally has is his breath. doesn't have his health. His wife's against him. All of those guys. How about Paul? Paul is like, man, what you're bringing on me, all the beatings, the shipwreck, this trial, this is more than I can bear. And what did the Lord say? No, it's not. Because my grace will be sufficient for you. And you look at that, I'm telling you, if you really break down that list and thought about what all he went through, and the Lord came to you tonight and said, well, you're going to start going through all that, I think we would be like, you've got to be kidding me. I can't handle that. Wouldn't you? I mean, I think about some of the stuff going on in other places. I'm like, I don't know, those people, it's the grace of God that gets them through. But if we hold up under the pressure, we can know that we will experience the joy and the glory and the honor that is promised from the Lord. Amen. If you go back to James and just turn back a page in my Bible to 1 Peter. And that's what he's saying. We can endure these trials. We will experience praise and honor and glory from our Lord. And that's what he's saying right here in 1 Peter 1, beginning in verse 7. He says, 
that the trial of your faith being much more precious than a gold medal, than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, that your faith in the end might be found unto praise and honor and glory. Well, where's that coming from? It's saying at the appearing of Jesus Christ. He is the one that will give you that. Praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, in whom though you see him not, yet believing, what happens? We rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your soul. Wow, I'm saying that to me is something. When our faith is tested and we endure, and that testing does what? He's not saying it's going to give you faith. It's just testing the faith you have to see whether it's genuine. And when that happens and it's proven to be genuine, then that'll give you more assurance. And you can know that when that day comes, you're going to be able to stand before the king of the universe. And he will give you praise and honor and glory. And that'll be our joy. It will be. So if you would turn over to Revelation chapter 3, and we'll see that there. Beginning in verse 8, and John writes to the church of Philadelphia. Actually, we'll start in verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that has the key of David, he that opens and no man shuts, and shuts and no man opens. Verse 8, he says, I know thy works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, and no man can shut it. Why? He says, For you have a little strength. And yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. He says, Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I'll make them to come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Why? Because you have kept the word of my patience or endurance. I also will keep you from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. He says, Behold, I come quickly. Hold fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. And so the saints of Philadelphia did not feel like they were giants of the faith. Jesus said himself to them that you only had a little strength, and it was all you could do to hold on. But held on they did. And he says, because of that, I'm going to reward you. I'm going to reward you in front of these people that have been your persecutors. I will cause them to bow down at your feet. And they'll know because I'm making them do that. That's not because they want to. They're going to know that I loved you. And he says, because you've done that, because you held on to my word and endured when it wasn't easy, when you had to cry and cry out for grace, he says, because of that, the promise is what? I'll keep you. From the hour you pass that test, I'll keep you from the hour that is going to test every person on this earth. It's coming up. It hadn't happened yet. It's still coming up. But what a promise of deliverance that is, isn't it? Something to hold on to. So listen, we'll see as we move on here through James. So James was a leader. He was a preacher. He was a pastor. And he talks straight in a lot of ways. He says some hard things. But... He talks in loving tones. He constantly says, I haven't counted them up, my brethren. He starts it off here, my brethren. It's all throughout. If you look, my brethren, my brethren. So he's not elevating himself. He's saying, I'm one of you. He's like, I've experienced hard trials myself. And he's saying, I'm just telling you, here's what I've learned. Count it all joy. 
when you experience divers' trials. Why? Because he's saying that God is doing a work in all of us, James is saying, my brethren. He wants all of us to be strong, complete, full-grown saints. And he's saying, I'm not saying that. I'm not telling you that because he's my brother. I'm saying that because he's my Lord and Savior and I know his heart. And he wants us, James would say, to be like him. So count it all joy, not because it feels good or because it's pleasant, but James would say, you got to look at the end result. Isn't that what all these people did that we talked about today? They looked at the end result, and that's the joy that enabled them to endure the pain and suffering of a trial. Amen? That's what God's saying. All righty. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, and ask for your grace to be on all of our lives, Lord, that we can lay hold on the promises and learn to seek you, Father, and to hold on and to be committed to your faithfulness and your goodness towards us, that no matter how hard it seems, we can count it all joy, not because the things we're experiencing are pleasant, but because you're faithful to your promise. And time after time after time, in the Old and New Testament, Lord, for people that held on and trusted you, you always showed yourself faithful. Anyone that's believed on you and trusted you has not been ashamed. And we thank you that you're that way and that we can count it all joy when we fall into divers' trials. And we thank you for the words you've given us today and ask you to bless it to our hearts and to watch over us the rest of this day, Lord. That your eye and your hand will be on us, that you'll speak to us and you'll cause us to seek you. This is your day. This is the Lord's day. And I thank you that you'll do that for us here in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you stand to your feet. Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet. Sung by flaming tongues above Praise the mount I'm fixed upon it Mount of God's unchanging love Here I raise my Ebenezer Hither by thy help I'm come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. Oh, to grace, how great a Oh
Here's my heart, oh, take and see. 